0: Hello, this is Roman Gabriel, and you are listening to The Grilling Truth. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the NFL Grueling Truth Legend Show, brought to you by Gridiron Mo, a new interactive football app where you get to call what the offense or defense should do in a live NFL game and see what all other fans have called also. Check out Gr- Gridiron Moe at www.gridironmoe.com. As always, for the Legend Show, I'm your host, Mike Goodpaster, and today we have another Pittsburgh Steeler and another Pittsburgh Steeler quarterback. Last week, we had former Steeler quarterback Terry Hanratty on this week. We have Mark Malone. How you doing, Mark?
1: Mike, I'm doing terrific. How are you,
0: sir? All right. I See, I'm a Bengals fan, just so you know, ahead of time. So I always hated the Steelers, but for some reason I've had like 50 Steelers on in the last year. <laughs> well, Mike, we all
1: have our cross to bear. I'm sorry that you're a Bengals fan. I know. Well, yes. see,
0: I'm the one Bengal fan <laughs> that realizes I only hate the Bengal or I hate the Steelers because they kick our ass all the time.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's so, fu- it's, it's so funny because I'm, I'm, you know, so far removed from my... Uh, from my playing days itself, people always ask me that, and I, you know, I listen. I haven't gotten a check from any team in the National Football League, and God knows when. So uh, I spent a lot of time, obviously, doing a nationally syndicated radio show, and I called some NFL games on uh, national radio for Westwood One. And anymore, I just root for good football games. I don't, I for some reason haven't carried that uh, that whole stigma of oh, I hate the Browns, I hate the, you know the Oilers, I
0: hate the Bengals kind of a thing. I
1: for some reason kind of turn over a new leaf.
0: Yeah, I've found as I get older, it seems to matter less and less anyways.
1: Yeah, I would agree,
0: 100%. But, I mean, so who who did you cheer for when you were a kid? Then I know you grew up in San Diego.
1: Yeah, no, I grew up in San Diego, and, uh, you know, I was, uh, I, listen, I tried to play football. My mom wouldn't let me play football until I got into high school, and uh, I proceeded to get my fanny beat around the field, not knowing how to play the game at all. I was a baseball player and a track guy, and um, it happened to uh, – Uh, To kind of take to the game and the sport well enough to uh, uh, to end up playing major college football and then of course drafted by the Steelers in 1980. But I can remember seeing my first football game uh, at the old Jack Murphy Stadium uh, when San Diego Chargers were in town and just uh, was enthralled by the sport itself. And um, you know, obviously as a kid, you you have these dreams. It's like go on to be become a professional athlete, but never thought that that would happen. But uh, that was my first football game in San Diego.
0: All right, so take us back. You grew up in San Diego, went to high school there. I know when you get to your senior year, you were one of the most heavily recruited quarterbacks in the nation, at least from what I read. So you want to walk us through the recruiting process in the mid-'70s and how that went for you and how you ended up at Arizona State?
1: Yeah, you know, Mike, I I actually had my choice to go anywhere I wanted to go in the country
0: uh,
1: as both a, a football player and a track guy. Uh, Tom Telez was the uh, track and field coach at UCLA and was heavily involved in the uh, U.S. Olympic team. And um, I, had, uh, I had led the nation in discus and uh, was in the top, I think, 10 in the, the state of California in the shot put. I triple jumped. I did it all. I did everything but pole vault, run a mile. And uh, they wanted me, like heck, to take a track scholarship and train for the Olympics. And at that point in time, uh, Bruce Jenner was uh, a guy that, uh, you know, obviously won the decathlon and got his face on a box of Wheaties and, and made a living at it. But people back then weren't really making a living at track and field. And I had the same opportunity uh, in football. I was uh, one, of, one of the uh, parade All-22s. So they pick a position at every uh, – or uh, a player, I should say, at every position around uh, the country. And uh, I was the quarterback. Had a chance to go any place I wanted to go. I was actually going to go to UCLA to play football there. I was in Dick Vermeule's office – on a recruiting trip, and uh, I was all fired up. They had just beaten Ohio State and Archie Griffin in the Rose Bowl, and uh, a game that I happened to be at as a guest of uh, Coach Vermeal and his, and his family. And um, uh, I, I was ready to go. The phone rang before he had taken me to the airport. Uh, we were in his office, and he spoke for about five minutes. And on the way back to the airport, he suggested, uh, well, actually told me, he said, listen, I want to let you know what that phone call was about. It was Leonard Toast, the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles, and he wants yeah. me to coach in the National Football League. And he says, you're going to hear a lot of stuff, obviously, because this stuff's going to leak out. I want you to know I have no desire to, to coach in the NFL. Uh, we still want you to come here to UCLA. We can build this program uh, to, to, to new heights. And I said, terrific. And two days later, he called me and said, I'm taking the job.
0: <laughs> 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 I think that's the story of every college coach who gets that call, and not it, and what they play with players.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my, my second choice, and, and listen, I like Tom Donahue, our uh, – uh, Terry Donahue, excuse me, who uh, ended up taking over the program, and Terry and I have known each other for years. Uh, Dick had uh, uh, a kid by the name of Shira at quarterback, and they ran a lot of option stuff, which I'd run some in college, excuse me, in high school. And uh, but he, he, he assured me Dick had that when we came, or if I came, we were going to run a more pro style offense, which would help develop me for uh, the next level of football. I wasn't so sure that Terry was that convinced in making that uh, offensive move. So uh, my second choice was Arizona State. They had signed uh, an agreement to move from the, uh, the then-WAC conference into the Pac-10 at that point in time uh, my, by my junior year. So it was going to be a major conference, and uh, they had just knocked off Nebraska to become number two in the country. And uh, so I ended up going to Arizona State. It was, six I think, six-hour drive from Tempe, Arizona, to my home in San Diego. So I was away from home. I was on my own, but I could get home if I needed to be. And uh, so that's that's how I ended up at Arizona State, and uh, it was. Uh, listen, I, I would do it all over again. Uh, I'm not so sure that Frank Kush, who I uh, hated uh, with every fiber of my being when I was there, <laughs> because he was such a. I mean, he was such a hard son of a gun to play for.
0: Yeah, from uh, what I and, hear, calling him a drill sergeant would probably be an understatement.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. He was, uh, you know, for and I don't know how many of your listeners will remember a Woody Hayes, but he was, you know, he was the Woody Hayes of the Southwest. And he used to beat and scream and yell. And, hell, we'd practice two and three times a day, full contact, full pads. And, I mean, he just – he was a tough son of a gun. Now, I hated him when I played. I'm not so sure that as a former All-American nose tackle at Michigan State that that guy was going to prepare me necessarily to, to play in the NFL at the quarterback position. But there are a lot of things that I learned having played with him or for him uh, for four years, that uh, you know, I use in my my life today. So I, Frank and I, unfortunately, he's dealing with some dementia, and Alzheimer's now, and um, his, his health is uh, a little bit shaky. But I, I, I just I idolize the guy now. I, I, if I had to come back and do it again, I would probably go back to Arizona State. Um, and uh, it was difficult because he ended up getting fired my senior year. Uh, he got into an altercation with one of the punters uh, on the sideline, and uh, I think took a swipe at him. And of course, uh, at that point in time, there was a faction of of people at the university who thought his time had had come to an end anyway. So they made a power play and forced him out. And uh, our senior year kind of got, you know, kind of blown up, if you will. But uh, anyways, played four years there and uh, got drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, just a couple months after they'd won their fourth Super Bowl. And uh, off to Pittsburgh I went.
0: Now see I, I remember me, you being mainly a drop back quarterback in Pittsburgh. I, I did not know that in nineteen seventy eight you were the leading rusher at Arizona State and ran for seven hundred and five yards.
1: Yeah, we had a combination offense where we ran some uh some sprint stuff, some sprint draw, a little bit of options, some drop back stuff. It was it was it was kind of all encompassing. Uh but I had come out of uh, I'd come out of Arizona State, uh I was about six foot five and two hundred and thirty pounds and I ran a four four two forty. And had the fastest 40 on the team. And, hell, when I got to Pittsburgh and the, and the Steelers, I had the fastest 40 on the team. So they tried to use my athleticism. And uh, so we, we ran the ball around a little bit. But to run the ball in college and running it in the, uh, the National Football League are two different things. You don't last very long yeah. in the NFL.
0: Yeah, I think That's Lou Holtz right. figured that out when he went to the Jets and tried to run the <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, offense. So, <laughs> so let's talk about your draft day in 1980. I mean, you had to be excited to be going to the two-time or the four-time world champions, but yeah. you also got to be thinking, well, how am I going to win a job here? Terry Bradshaw's already there. Yeah, you know, it was so
1: different back then, Mike, than it is today. Uh, today, because the, the draft prospects are slotted, uh, there's, there's not much patience uh, with quarterbacks today. You draft a guy in the first round, you give a couple years. If it doesn't work out, you move on. Uh, back then, it was more about when you drafted a guy in the first round, more often than not, uh, he was going to spend a couple of years as an apprentice, kind of learning how to play in the NFL, learning the system, and those kinds of things. And I thought to myself, yeah, even the well, guys well,
0: that were taken in the first round back then were treated like that a lot.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I thought to myself, well, h- you know, here's a deal. I- I'm getting drafted by the four-time Super Bowl champions. They've won four of those things in the last six years. Uh, I've got Terry Bradshaw, who's still in his prime. Hell, I'm, I'm going to learn how to play in the National Football League for the next three or four years. In the meantime, I'll pick up a couple of Super Bowl rings. And boy, this is a great deal. Uh, it yeah. didn't necessarily work out that way. Uh, as a starter myself, I think the furthest uh, we got was the AFC Championship game in 84 when we lost to Dan Marino and the uh, the Dolphins down in Miami. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was excited. I can remember the day I walked into that locker room uh, for uh, rookie orientation. And, you know, you walk in there and you look around and it's really uh, kind of a who's who of uh, Canton, Ohio. I mean, whether it was – Yeah, half the locker rooms in yeah. Canton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you had Joe Green and Terry Bradshaw and Stallworth and Swan and Lambert and Ham, and I mean, just go right down the line. Blunt, and just you looked around and you go, my God, I, I, I know I was a first round draft pick. I don't know that I could, I could play with these guys. It was, it yeah. was rather daunting to walk into that locker room, and it, it took a while to, to finally understand and. And come to the conclusion that you know, listen, I can play in the National Football League. But uh, yeah, it was it was pretty daunting walking into that locker room for the first time.
0: Well, and you get there, I mean, you're surrounded by legends in the front office, the head coach. I mean, what was it like to play for the Rooney family?
1: Well, the Rooney family are obviously, you know, from my perspective, uh, a, a very special group. They are, you know, one of the, uh, you know, kind of charter members of the National Football League, and uh, it's a it's a you know, we were talking about whether or not, you know, I root for anybody and I don't necessarily root for the Steelers, but I really enjoy when they have success because I'm very fond of the Rooney family. Uh, the chief, uh, Art Rooney who is no longer with us was just a special guy, uh, who was a sportsman. And, uh, you know, you, how I'd be in there, it'd be the last one in the locker room, uh, back when I was playing for them and having watched film and done whatever else and, uh, come out of the shower, there'd be nobody there and chief would be walking through and, He'd give you a cigar and pull up a stool next to your locker and get out a deck of cards and sit there and have a talk and play gin, and uh, he was just a special, special family. They live on the north side of, of Pittsburgh. Uh, they've been a fabric of that community forever. They not only expect you to be obviously good football players because uh, they, they want to win there, but they expect you to be involved in the community and uh, be one of them. and And I don't know that that exists as much today as it uh, as it did back then. So. For, for that reason alone, any time that they have success, I feel very good because I just, I'm just i very fond of that family. I think they do things the right
0: way. Yeah, and the thing that's amazing to me about him is the fact that I, I really, I've really i probably interviewed 20 former players and coaches that were Pittsburgh Steelers anywhere from the mid-60s to present day, and every one of them absolutely says nothing but great things about him, and they all love the guy.
1: Yeah, no, he was terrific. Uh, Dan, his son, who has taken over now, his son Artie, is, uh, is kind of running the show. But, you know, even Dan back in the day, I can remember I had an issue with my knee and blew up my knee in the year, I think my second year in the league, and, and uh, it, it got misdiagnosed by the team doctor, which, you know, things were a little bit different back then than they are today. And, uh, you know, I walked in there, and I had a meeting with Dan at that point in time because the chief, Art, was really not involved in the day-to-day operations any longer. And I said, Dan, listen, i got an issue I said, I've had a second opinion on this, and uh, I said, uh, they're telling me I've got some torn ligaments. You guys said uh, it was probably just a little cartilage tear, and um, I said, one of two things have happened here. Either you guys or the doctors have either uh, not been honest with me or they screwed up this diagnosis, and either way, I said, I don't want to have them operate on this thing. I want to go down and see a specialist. Back then, that was almost unheard of, and uh, he said, listen, do what you have to do. Don't worry about it. Make sure you get well. Went down there and uh, took care of it, and they took care of all the, uh, the payment for the doctor and everything else and all the rehab stuff, and, um, you know, away we went. So, I mean, he was always a fair-minded person. That family, to a great extent, has always been fair-minded. They have a way of doing things that uh, some people wouldn't call progressive today, but uh, I just think they've always been fair and honest, and uh, they, they treat you like a member of the family. And, I, like I say, that's hard to find these days.
0: Well, that's why they
1: continue to win. Yeah, no, I agree. I, you know, I've always said this and how I played in the NFL for a decade and uh, as a broadcaster now I've been covering it for over a quarter century and uh, you're exactly right. You know, organizations that find success, it starts from the top and works down and you know, we want to talk about the head coach, but it starts with ownership there and uh, everybody takes their cue from them and I, I agree with you 100%. It's why they continue to be successful.
0: All right, so Terry Bradshaw ends up retiring at the end of the '83 season. You were coming off the knee injury. Looks like mm-hmm. you're going to be the starting quarterback going into 1984, and then the, and then all of a sudden the Steelers bring David Woodley in. What were your thoughts there?
1: Well, you know, obviously, anytime they bring in somebody that uh, you know you uh, that you're going to compete with, especially being a first round draft pick, uh, you're not particularly happy about it. Uh, I was coming back off of this uh, this knee reconstruction and. Uh, I ended up playing the rest of my career without a, a posterior cruciate ligament, so I had a little slop in the in the joint, and it wasn't responding quite as well. And, of course, Dan Marino was drafted by Don Shula and the Dolphins. Uh, David Woodley had led the Dolphins to a Super Bowl and lost, and uh, they didn't have any use for him. So uh, if you remember, Chuck Noll and Don Shula used to play together and had a very long relationship. They ended up making a deal and brought David Woodley in. And David started the season because my knee wasn't really quite ready to go yet. And uh, he kind of went up and down and struggled a little bit. And uh, at some point in the season, Chuck said, hey, listen, you know, your knee has come along. He says, uh, we're going to go ahead and start you. So I ended up starting uh, the rest of the year and uh, ended up winning some pretty big games. We went out the Candlestick and beat San Francisco the year they were 15-1. and and, uh, of course, they went on to win the Super Bowl that year, beating Miami. But uh, we beat them out there. We uh, went to Denver and beat John Elway in a, in a playoff game. And uh, <clears throat> everything was uh, rolling along pretty good. We went down to Miami, and I think we were leading at halftime in the AFC Championship game. And in the second half, uh, Dan Marino just lit us up. He threw for, God, over 400 yards, I think, of that game. And uh, we ended up losing. And then uh, in the following season, I ended up starting – And I believe, uh, well, actually you're Bengals. I ended up dislocating my great toe uh, in the uh, Cincinnati game. And uh, back then they decided not to do surgery on it. So it kept me out about, uh, oh, I don't know, a month or six weeks before I could actually play again. But uh, before that had happened, I think, I don't know, five weeks into the season or so, I was leading the NFL in touchdown passes and uh, quarterback rating and all that other stuff. Things were going really well. And just a combination of that injury and then ultimately uh, tore some ligaments in my thumb and my throwing hand and those kinds of things, it just it, it just seemed like I couldn't get over the hump. And uh, to be honest with you, Mike, I think that, you know, I look back at it sometimes and, and I look at that roster in 84 when we went to the championship game. And I think a lot of people in Pittsburgh and for the most part in that locker room thought, boy, we're really close. We're a player away or so of, of winning the Super Bowl. But uh, if you go back and you look at, you know, running backs, uh, offensive line and things of those natures, even on the defensive side of the football, you know there weren't a lot of household names. And you know, I always ask people, I said, you know, can you tell me who started on the offensive line of that football team, or who was the defensive end on uh, you know that defense? A lot of people can't remember. Well, the guy the that always were...
0: stood out to me that most people that aren't big football fans that grew up through that area or era was Louis Lips.
1: Yeah, Louis Lips came on, and Louis was one of the uh, one of the. One of the guys that really I thought excelled uh, in '84, I think it was uh, John Stallworth, who's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Had the best he had had the best year of his career from a statistical standpoint. The year we went to the championship game, uh, Louis Lips, I believe, was a rookie in '80. I want to say '84, '83, '84, and uh, Louis started to come around, and he was a different kind of wide receiver. But uh, he started to put up big numbers, and we, we were able to get him the ball a little bit. Of course, John ended up retiring, Stall. So, uh, but I mean, we had guys. Terrific guys. Uh, Frankie Pollard at running back. But, you know, nobody remembers a Frankie Pollard. We had Ouija Thompson from Florida State, a white wide receiver. He's six foot six and 230 pounds. Not a lot of separation there. We had a walk-on at Alabama at tight end, and Preston Gothard, who uh, I think was an undrafted free agent, who uh, started at tight end for us. So we had a lot of guys who had a lot of grit and fought, but not a lot of superstars, I think, on either side of the ball. You mentioned Louis Lips, and that would have probably been uh, the biggest weapon I think we had offensively, is, is especially after Stallworth retired.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, it had to be great, especially young quarterback. Even '84, you've been in four or five years, but because of the injury, he hadn't played that much. He had to be somebody that you could really depend on. I think he ended up being even your team MVP that year, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, Louis was great. I mean, he wasn't a big, tall, strong, uh, big, tall guy. He was kind of, uh, you know, on the shorter side, but he had a great ability to one, run routes, and two, uh, stop and change directions quickly. And uh, back then, you know, defenses around the league were starting to develop and evolve a little bit. They, they certainly weren't to the extent, extent that they are today, but, you know, he, he did a great job of releasing at the line of scrimmage, which is what I think a lot of guys, young guys in the National Football League, even today, have trouble with coming from college to the NFL, and that is getting off of the jam at the line of scrimmage, and so, you know, when you'd see press man and no safety, you know, we'd had automatic checks and audibles and we'd get the ball to him one on one and he did a terrific job. He was a tough, tough kid. He returned some kicks and punts for us as well and uh I still communicate a little bit with Louis. But uh yeah, he was he was some kind of a go to guy. But once you took him away there wasn't a lot there wasn't a lot left on the offensive
0: side of the football. Well get me in touch with him. I've been trying to find him actually. <laughs> He used to always destroy the Bengals, but, I mean, it's the Bengals, so most people do. <laughs> but, I, you had a great coaching staff there, and, I mean, I don't yep, think people did. realize you had Chuck Knoll, but you also, you yeah. had Tony Dungy was the defensive coordinator, and Tom Moore was the offensive coordinator.
1: Yeah, we had, well, when I got there, you had, you know, Dungy, who had played there before, <laughs> was kind of a defensive back, uh, backup quarterback type of a guy, uh, ended up coming on to the staff, and he ultimately became the defensive coordinator, but we had, uh Not only Tom Moore, who I stay in contact with. He's still on Bruce Arian's staff out here in Arizona. I can't believe he's still coaching. Uh, But you had Tom Moore. Uh, We had uh, George Perlis, who was the defensive guy. Um, We had Woody Woodenhofer, who was a terrific uh, linebackers coach. We had a hell of a staff. And I can remember oftentimes, you know, Chuck was such uh, a cerebral guy and so intelligent. And, you know, coaches are teachers. That's what they are in the National Football League. I think we get away from that. But Chuck would – would look at things and try to dissect things and come up with different ways of teaching techniques. And I can remember leaving the uh, the locker room in the evenings. Usually I'd be the last one out and walk through the hallways and out to the uh, front door. And I'd walk by Chuck's office. They'd be having a staff meeting in there about what, what it was they were going to do in the uh, game plan that week or some sort of new technique that they were going to teach. and I mean, they would be screaming and yelling at each other and calling each other, you know, curse names and, I mean, I'm talking about guys on the staff that were, you know, directing those kinds of <laughs> verbal barrages, if you will, at Chuck Nolan. I was like, holy crap, I can't believe <laughs> that they actually talked to that guy like that. But, you know, it's so funny because I think uh, in, in a lot of situations around the national football league, you get a lot of yes guys. You know, they're, they're happy to yeah. have a job. Whatever a coach says, yes, sir, that, that's awesome. Yeah, we're going to do that. And uh, back then, I don't know if it was the makeup of the staff or the, or the time and place or, w- or what it was, but... Uh, Boy, they used to have some great arguments about how to get things done, and I think ultimately that made us a better football team.
0: Well, well, see, I think this, and this has always been my point, I think a great coach, I mean, you get a lot of high school coaches, especially college coaches, but you walk up, a player will ask them something, and they'll take offense to it, like the players, you know, questioning what they know. The way I always took it, I coached football 20, 25 years, coached my son's high school team now, coached arena football for a while, but the way I always took it was this. If you come up and ask me why I'm doing something, and I can't explain to you why I'm doing it. I probably shouldn't be doing it. So I think guys <laughs> like Chuck Knoll surround himself. He surrounds himself with guys that know something. And then he yeah. he gets them to code or they, they discuss it, they figure out how they want to do it, and then they do it the way Coach Knoll wanted it done.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I think anytime that you have a staff and people like that that are responsible, and I mean, listen, as a head coach, you got to delegate a lot of authority. You you know, the, the defensive linemen are over there working on their techniques. It's part of what they're doing defensively, but as a head coach, you're not over there. But I, I think having an open and a healthy discussion about what's right, what's wrong, and how to how to accomplish uh, something. And, you know, the old saying, there's, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat is great. And then at some point in time, you have to come up with a consensus at the end of the day and then move on and, and go ahead and teach it that way. And, They were terrific at doing that. They really were. And, uh, like I said, I I really believe that to to a great extent, uh, allowing to have that kind of atmosphere on the staff uh, really helped that football team become, you know, one of the best football teams of all time. All
0: right. And then you went from that to San Diego. uh, (laughs) I I remember going and watching the Bengals and the Chargers in 88. You were the starting quarterback. And I I really really felt so. There wasn't much out there around you in San Diego.
1: No, there really wasn't. Uh, you know, it, it's so funny. Uh, Don Coriel well, they had called and made a trade for me. Dan, uh, Dan Fouts obviously had, was, was a fixture there for years, and uh, Dan decided to retire, and uh, apparently uh, they couldn't come to an agreement with Don Coriel, so Don Coriel decided he was going to quit too. So basically the entire staff uh, was out. Uh, Dan was out. The team wasn't what I would call in great shape. Very, you know, to a certain extent, a little bit like the Steelers. You know, when I got to Pittsburgh in 1980, they had come off their fourth Super Bowl in six years, and everybody just thought, oh, they, you know, they, they, they were unbeatable. But when you start looking at that roster back then in Pittsburgh, a lot of guys were old and they were hanging on. And it was one of the things that I think Chuck always struggled with: is at some point in time, uh, you've got to be able to, to make, uh, you know, a decision on these guys, not based on emotion or what kind of relationship you had with them or what they've done for you in the past but how they were going to be able to perform for this uh, point forward. So, you know, whether it was an L.C. Greenwood or, for instance, a Franco Harris at some point in time wanted a, a big contract, he ended up finishing his career in Seattle. And when you look at San Diego, it was very similar. I mean, Fouts had left, and some of the great players that they had had gone on. Leslie O'Neill was still there, but was coming off an ACL injury. He wasn't quite the same player. Offensively, they lost a lot of weapons. Uh, you know, Al Saunders ended up becoming uh, the head coach there. And it was just kind of, to a great extent, a little bit dysfunctional. They were trying to find their place. They needed to rebuild the roster. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't the easiest place to play, I can, I can tell you that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only weapon you guys really had on offense, I think, was Gary Anderson, if I remember, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, Gary, Gary was there, a hybrid guy who was a terrific athlete, uh, could catch the ball out of the backfield. He was kind of a slasher. He wasn't a guy that was going to run anybody over, but he was a terrific athlete. Uh, He was there for a couple of years with us before they ended up uh, getting rid of him. But we had uh, a real young Quinn Early uh, who was there, one of the uh, wide receivers, and uh, a couple of guys that uh, looked like they they could certainly probably play in the NFL and and maybe have some successful careers. But, I mean, they were essentially rookies. And uh, it was just very difficult to line up every Sunday and feel like you had a really good chance to to beat the team that you were facing.
0: I think you guys had Darren Flutie, Doug's brother, too, didn't you?
1: Uh, Darren was there. Yeah, Darren was a wide receiver, kind of a possession
0: guy. That, you know, you know, worked before he spot. went to the CFL. So
1: yeah, yeah, no. So Darren was there. Great guy. I love Darren. Darren was smart as smart as a whip. And, uh, you know, uh, he would have probably been considered back then a poor man's type, you know, Wes Welker type of a guy. Wasn't going to overpower yeah. anybody, yeah. but really smart. knew how to run
0: routes and, and
1: got, it, got everything. If you got it anywhere within the zip code of him, he'd find a way to, to drag it in. He was a, He was a great little player.
0: All right, so you get done with football. You retired, still young when you retired. Um, have any mm-hmm. regrets?
1: No, I mean, listen, I, you, know, you, you go into the National Football League, and I think every player today uh, does this. You go in uh, with one goal in mind, and that is to win a Vince Lombardi trophy. And uh, like I said, in 84 we got to the championship game and came up short against the Dolphins. Um, if I look back on my career – uh, boy, I wish I'd, it had gone a little bit differently or a little bit better or if this would happen, I wouldn't have gotten that injury, got, you know, whatever. But, you know, you can't change those things. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it all over again, to be honest with you. I uh, I don't know that I have any regrets. I wished I would have won a Super Bowl. That didn't happen. Uh, as you can see in today's world, that, uh, hell, you don't even have to win a Super Bowl. played in a Super Bowl, even in the uh, industry that I've been in for the last 26 years. Uh, it... it people in this business uh, set you apart. You know, your stature becomes a little bit different because you played in the big game or won a big game. That didn't happen to me. So, uh, you know, I went about my business. Hell, I was 30 years old, I think, 29 or 30 when I when I finished. And, uh, you know, you think, hey, listen, I, I got the rest of my life to live. I better figure out what I'm going to do and, and move on.
0: So what made you decide on broadcasting?
1: Well, it's funny. I You know, I was actually uh, – I was apprenticing for uh, a friend of mine who owned a uh, – a construction company who built a lot of uh, custom homes and things of that nature, and I was actually in the process of of uh, trying to put together a company and start specking homes back then. And uh, I got a call from the NBC affiliate in Pittsburgh. I was still living in Pittsburgh, and uh, they said, "Hey, listen, we'd like you to come and uh, you know talk to us about you know being the analyst on a pre and a post game show uh, that we do with uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers." They had the contract locally. So I went and talked to them, and I, I gave it some thought, and I said, here's the deal. I'll, I'd be happy to do that, but I'd like to have kind of unfettered access to uh, your general assignment news reporters, uh, to your sports department. I'd like to learn about the business. I, I had no education in broadcasting whatsoever, so I said, you know, I just want to do that. I'm not asking you to pay me or anything else. I just like to ride around with these reporters and hang out in your sports department. And uh, Personally, I thought I would give myself maybe a year and see a did i like it b is it something that i can you know get my hands around and get better at and kind of see where this is going and then make a decision after that and you know one thing led to another uh i think the first year i, I worked in broadcasting mike i made twelve thousand five hundred dollars
0: and, yeah, a little uh, different than the NFL. Yeah, a lot <laughs> now, different than the NFL. Now, did you get anybody that was already broadcasting, went to school for it? Did you get anybody that maybe held some resentment because you got the job and didn't uh, go to school for that?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's probably some of that that went on. But I, I think I was able to, uh, to erase a lot of those feelings because of just the way I went about it. And I didn't ask for anything. I just worked for everything I got. I would hang around with general assignment news reporters and how we'd go out to a story on a house fire or, you know, whatever. And then I would hang out after dinner. And remember at that time, uh, with my wife at the time, I'd had I just had twins. So I'm making twelve thousand five hundred dollars. I got twins at home. I'm trying to, you know, to juggle all this stuff. I'm in the sports department at nights trying to figure out how it is that they put together uh sports casts, and then when they would go home to at night at eleven thirty, I would go down in the newsroom and they had one of those fixed cameras and a little teleprompter uh, that they would do updates on and I would I'd write a sports cast and I'd send it I'd set it up and I would practice on the teleprompter and do a fake sports cast and I'd look at it and I just did that two three four nights a week and uh, just tried to work at it and work at it and then things started to happen for me uh, somebody screwed up the uh, vacation deal and it was Christmas night and uh, they didn't have a guy on staff to do the sports that night so the news director called me in and said hey come here he says, uh, I'm not telling anybody about this, because if, it, if somebody's watching and you screw this up, it might get me fired, but I want you to a sports sportscast on Christmas Eve. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I did that. Uh, by the way, the sports director, or not sports director, the, uh, the general manager, the news director of that station at the time, <clears throat> I keep in touch with him. He sent me a, a tape of that first sportscast I did, and I looked at it, and I thought, how in the hell could anybody hire a guy that was that bad that early in his career? But I, I, got through, I got through that, and then all of a sudden uh, the Pirates went to back-to-back NLCSs. Uh, the Penguins and Mario Lemieux were winning Stanley Cups. The sports department was short-staffed, so they started sending me to Madison Square Garden uh, to cover the Rangers and the Penguins. And then I went down to Atlanta to do the Braves and and uh, the Pirates in the NLCS and started doing live hits and, you know, those kinds of things. And, and it just kind of started to snowball, and I started to get better at it, understand what was required of me and uh i had a guy that uh, i worked with in the sports department that said you know you ought to be doing national stuff i said national are you crazy i said i can't hardly get through this and he said no i'm serious you're you're, you're getting pretty good at this so i hired an agent got me into the uh, got me a, an interview and an audition at espn they hired me as a bureau reporter i worked a year as, or two as a bureau reporter and then they hired me full-time and uh gave me my own show and I worked a decade there and I left there and went to Chicago to become the sports director and, and anchor in Chicago at the CBS affiliate. So it's, it's just, it's worked out. It's been a great second career. It's kept me close to sports. Uh, I didn't, I, again, I didn't go to uh, to a university or, or, get educated on it other than just, you know, kind of grassroots, get down, get dirty. Don't, I'm not asking to pay, get paid. I just, I want to figure out how to learn how to do this. And I, and I think to a great extent, it's probably made me a better broadcaster because Everything you learn is, you know, a real-life thing. It's not something that's in a, you know, in a vacuum in a classroom someplace. So, yeah, um, that, that's kind of how I got into broadcasting. And, like I said, I think I've been doing it now for 26, 27 years, and it's uh, it's been terrific.
0: All right. So, you want to tell listeners where they can hear you today and anything else that may occupy your spare time right now?
1: Well, you know, I uh, try to play a little golf out here in Scottsdale when I get a chance. Not as much as I'd like to, but... Uh, uh, I've been doing a uh, nationally syndicated sports talk radio show on NBC Sports Radio. It's called Under Center with Mark Malone. And uh, I do it Monday through Friday from 7 to 10 Eastern Time. And uh, if uh, you don't have an affiliate in your marketplace that uh, carries the show, you can also you know, go online or get the NBC Sports Radio app and listen to it online. So I do that Monday through Friday. I've been uh, calling national football games for Westwood One. Uh, on national radio for probably seven or eight years now, so that uh, occupies a lot of my time during the football season. You do the radio show Monday through Friday and jump on a plane and do uh, NFL games on the weekend. So, uh, yeah, so far I figure at some point in time, Mike, somebody's going to pat me on the butt and say, you're getting kind of old, thanks for being here. So I figure I'll just continue to work and make as much money as I can. And I, I enjoy what I'm doing, so it's, it's all been good. Well, you retired from football young. You're still young then, right? <laughs> Yeah, I'm still young, but you know how this business is. They'd much rather pay some 27 year old kid about. That's every uh, money business anymore, Mark.
0: You. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the joke will be on everybody else when 20 years from now everybody's out of a job because they got robots doing everything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I hope it, so at uh, least you we know, have got to work longer than all those guys did. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm hoping by then I'll be six foot under the ground. But uh, yeah, no, it's 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 all good. I've enjoyed the heck out of it, and you know, one what, what, what of the nice things about the broadcasting is that. Uh, you know, you've, I've been able to, to keep a lot of those relationships that uh, I had when I was playing football, and you're talking about things that you enjoy and you love. And uh, so, for me, uh, I left the game, but I really didn't leave the game. And, and uh, at the same point in time, been able to make a living at it. So,
0: no, right. And, and I talked about being a Bengals fan and always get Steelers. I just got confirmation that next week on the Legend Show, our guest will be Rocky Blyer, who was, of course, a Pittsburgh Steeler. One of my favorites, by the way, yeah.
1: I, I, I saw Rocky at the Super Bowl the other day. I said, buddy, what have you been up to? He
0: says, well, I'm still
1: speaking. I said, uh, have you changed anything about that presentation in the last 30 years? He goes, hell no. I still say the same old thing, and they keep buying it up. So tell Rocky, he's one of the great guys. Uh, obviously, his story is terrific, having been a Vietnam vet and, and then gone on to the Steelers to win those. Super oh yeah, Bears. I remember
0: being 12 years old when I think it was fighting back came out and watching that movie, yeah. and he was one of my favorites from then on. Yeah,
1: you'll have a great you'll have a great uh, a great time with Rocky. He's a he's a
0: terrific guy. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Greatly appreciated. Mike,
1: it's my pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for having
0: me, and uh, you have a good rest of your year, my man. All right, thanks a lot, Mark. All right, guys, that was former Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Mark Malone. Um, you can check all of our shows out on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Music, TuneIn, Spreaker, Stitcher, anywhere you find sports podcasts, you'll find The Grueling Truth. Make sure you catch our sponsor, Gridiron Moe, at www.gridironmoe.com. So for Mark Malone, I'm Mike Goodpasser. You've been listening to The Grueling Truth. Where
1: the